Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Sydney. And this week's episode, Exploring Long Island, is to dive for. Sydney, do you have any news for us? Any marine science news? Yes, it will be outdated by the time this is released, but... Perfect. Um, we can't the... read the future. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Uh, the first thing that popped up on my news feed today was that the world's biggest iceberg, weighing one trillion tons, is now floating freely in the open ocean. So, uh... All my boaters, watch out. No more Titanic. Oh my god. Wow. So, so it used to just be, like, attached to the seafloor? Um, it sounds like it... Let me see. Yeah. Um, it was previously anchored to the ocean floor for 30 years. Now it's moving northward, driven by the wind and ocean currents, drifting past the Antarctic Peninsula. And they've been observing it from space. That's how big it is. Um, so this is the world's biggest iceberg. They are calling it A23A. And this colossal ice mass covers an area of 1,500 square miles. Wow. And it has a volume of 263 cubic miles. And weighs nearly one trillion tons. I, I can't even fathom that. It is four times the size of New York City and about 100 million times heavier than the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Wow. That that's is a lot of ice. That's a lot of ice. I also like how we've compared its weight and like we're using all of these units of measurement that are not. Yeah. <laughs> Americans will be measuring anything but the metric system. It's four billion Eiffel Towers. Uh, <laughs> I'm just picturing trying to take a taxi across New York City four times. Yeah, yeah, pretty big. <laughs> yeah, and apparently it's moving northward at approximately 30 miles per day. And they said that it could disrupt the feeding patterns of local wildlife, such as penguins especially if it obstructs mm. typical foraging areas. So, hmm. yeah. Interesting. Well, luckily it won't impact the foraging of any polar bears because ain't no bears in Antarctica. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Tell the people. Um, <laughs> I think I've mentioned this fun fact like at least two times already, so... <laughs> <laughs> Go listen to all our episodes. Yes. <laughs> um, but speaking of four times the size of New York City, we have a special guest today from New York, from Long Island, not New York City, but close geographically. Yes. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we are very excited to share everything that he has to say with you guys today. So uh, with that, we will let our special guest introduce himself. Uh, so my name is Chris Paparo. Uh, I am born and raised on Long Island, grew up in Holbrook. Uh, I currently live in Calverton, which is close to Riverhead, so I'm on the eastern end of Long Island. 
So Chris, will you tell us a little bit about what drew you to the water originally? So, you know, I was, I guess, six years old and uh, my dad wanted to do something with me. And a couple of his colleagues said, you know, you should take your son fishing. You know, it's a good thing to do with your son and bonding. And he did. He took me fishing to the Shinnecock Canal. Uh, so I have a lot of fun mem memories of the Shinnecock Canal. And uh, we went fishing for winter flounder, which was my first fish. And I remember we caught a bucket full of them. And uh, ever since then, I've been hooked on fishing, on fish in general. It's been on my brain ever since. Um, and even to this day, I still fish as much as I possibly can. Unfortunately, though, in New York, you don't fish year-round like you do in some of your warmer climates, but uh, I, t I certainly try. Yeah, I feel like shifting baselines is also a interesting topic specifically with Long Island because I feel like whenever I used to talk to people about, oh, I'm helping with the seal rehabilitation and research or the sea turtles, people were like, we have that on Long Island. I feel like so many people don't know the wildlife that is present on Long Island and in New York. So I feel like that's even more of an important topic. People don't know what the baseline is, at least in the general public. Yeah, and I mean, that's a big part of my side business, the Fish Guy Photos. Um, you know, that started out as, as uh, I was going to be a photographer that worked for Nat Geo and went around the world and, you know, um, but, you know, realistically, that doesn't happen, generally speaking. You know, those those people generally have a lot of money. Uh, not always, but generally have the money and the availability to fly to these exotic places and sit there and wait for the right moment to come. Uh, but I was really into the photography, and then I started just kind of focusing here. Because, again, we often think you have to go far away to see something cool and exotic. And, you know, just in all my time fishing, I would see all these really cool fish or crabs, seals, sea turtles, whales, and... Uh, so I just started kind of showcasing the cool stuff that's here on Long Island. And because uh, I think if people are more aware, they're more willing to care. Yep. Uh, you know, I think too often they just, they don't know. So like, <clears throat> for example, one of the lectures I give is called From Plankton to Whales, Why Are Waters Worth Protecting? And I generally don't like to focus on any negative stuff. Like if you go through my posts on social media, you'll very, very rarely see me talking about harmful algal blooms, climate change. Because you know what, there's enough people that are already doing that. Uh, so I focus on all the positive stuff and the cool animals so that when somebody brings those things up, they're like, oh, wait a minute, harmful algal blooms. That could kill the scallops that have 18 pairs of eyes and, you know, all this other cool stuff. So kind of let them get a little bit more excited uh, when somebody brings up the, that doom and gloom. You know, and again, it's not always all doom and gloom. You know, there's been a lot of positive success stories, especially here on Long Island. Uh, humpback whales are one. You know, that was an animal that was hunted almost to extinction in the Atlantic. And today they're not even listed as endangered or threatened in the, in the North Atlantic. So it's a huge success story. But when I post a picture of a whale, people right away were like, I've been here 60 years. I've never seen a whale. What's going on? It must be climate change. And I'm like, no, we've protected them. The Clean Water Act. There's food for them. You know, so often we people have this idea of blaming you know something like climate change for a positive also but you know there's not knowing the connection so again just trying to get people better educated and aware so they have a better understanding and can make wiser choices moving forward yeah jess would jess would ask me all the time jess is always like where are the whales where can i see the whales and i'm like you just got just pay attention you will see them and now 
She spots them regularly. She's always sending me pictures. I mean, even a couple years ago, she even spotted some right whales, which is just, wow, you know, that's just amazing. It's, you know, so yeah, you just gotta pay attention, you know, know they're there. Um, and I, I'm excited because when I first started posting those pictures of, like you said, people on the beach, nobody was looking. They're on their phones, they're on their book, whatever they're doing. Uh, but now, more times than not, I hear them cheering or I see them holding up cameras or their phones. So it's kind of exciting to see that people are now starting to get it and starting to pay attention. And again, that that makes a big difference. I think I think I would cry if I was on the beach and started watching a whale breaching and then everyone started cheering for the whale. I think I just, I would just lose it. That's so great. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't be alone uh, crying if you saw a whale like that. I've taken a lot of people to for their first time seeing a whale and uh, it happens a lot. People get very choked up, very emotional because they're a big animal. Uh, and when you see them jumping out of the water and grabbing fish, it's just pretty, yeah. uh, pretty amazing. I remember leading a naturalist trip for at the college at Stony Brook there, and uh, one of the girls that was a naturalist for the museum was out there, and we had we were surrounded by whales. We were a little bit further offshore, and we had five whales come up, maybe a hundred yards from us, taking deep breaths and go down, and the the mist. The blow drifted towards us, and if you've ever smelled whale blow, it stinks. It is, it is one of the, I've, I've smelt that before I've seen a whale, and uh, it got on her face. It actually fogged my camera because it, it was so misty, and uh, she just started crying, and I thought she was freaking out because of the grossness that's now on her, and it well, had nothing to do with that. It was just the idea <laughs> of seeing five of the most majestic animals right there. And uh, she kind of, it got really emotional for her. So again, that's, that's a moment I never forget. And, you know, I've seen Wells a bunch of times, but that's a, that's a moment I'll never forget just because of the impact it had on her. Yeah. Well, we keep alluding to all the things you do. <laughs> Would you like to give us a little intro to like what your career is and what this like side hobby, side job business of yours is? Yeah. So... My day job, I am the manager of the Marine Sciences Center at Stony Brook University at the Southampton campus. So there I'm in charge of a $10 million research lab where I work with scientists that study everything from harmful algal blooms to whales and sharks, you know, um, and again, everything in between. And uh, <clears throat> for me, that's kind of exciting because I don't consider myself a scientist. Uh, I know a lot of the grad students give me a hard time when I say that, but I'm like, I'm not a scientist. I'm more of an educator. Um, I work with scientists, but I'm not doing any research myself. Uh, but for me, it's exciting because I get to get a look into their world, which helps me better understand my world a little bit. And I like to be the, the connection between the two. So one of the things I've learned in my years working at Stony Brook is I, again, work with a lot of researchers and many of them, not all of them, but many of them do not know how to be an educator. You know, they'll do some amazing research. They'll study some of fascinating stuff. They'll go to an international conference. They'll present it. And the people in the room get it and are excited. But those people don't necessarily need to know what's going on. It's the public that needs to know what's going on. And if you stand up there and start rattling off charts and graphs and statistics and Latin names goes right over everybody's head, you know, and um, like, so that's where I take it, where I, I get to see what they're doing, 
and then either through my lectures or through my educational posts uh, or through lecture series that I host, I try to then make it, you know, un have them understand their audience and get to the people that need to know it. So that's kind of my day job. Uh, Fish Guy Photos is my side business now. I've been owner of that for, gee, I want to say it's got to be at least 15 years, if not longer now. And it started out, as I mentioned earlier, I just wanted to be a world-known photographer that just shot for net, cover shots for Nat Geo. That was what kind of started it. Um, but it's very hard to sell photography because there's a lot of photographers out there. And uh, it wasn't going as planned. But at the time, I was working for the Long Island Aquarium. I was a senior biologist. I was in charge of a lot of large exhibits. And one of my coworkers kind of nudged me to write an article about one of the exhibits I take care of. And aquarium hobby is one of the biggest hobbies in the world. You know, people do all sorts of stuff. And he's like, look, you're taking care of exhibits that people would love to learn how you do that. So I laughed because I was in remedial English all through high school. You know, there was no way I would ever write. If you went back to me in high school and said, you're going to be a writer someday, I would have laughed. Um, through a lot of editing and mentoring, he helped me get my first article published. But what was exciting was I got to use my photos to go with the article. Uh, and then I wrote a follow-up article, and then it kind of snowballed. And those first articles, when I read them now, make me cringe. Uh, I'm very embarrassed by them. They're horrible grammar and everything. Um, but that, again, snowballed into I had picked up. I was writing a column for On the Water magazine for six years, North Forker for five. I'm president of the New York State Outdoor Writers Association. I'm a board member with the Outdoor Writers Association of America. So all of a sudden, writing is my thing, but the photography is what was selling the articles. Because, uh, you know, it's hard for an editor to find high-quality photos to go with an article. So they could, <clears throat> they didn't have to hire somebody to do the pictures. I could just take the pictures. Uh, and then I started lecturing because I like to talk. <laughs> if you haven't told you here, I can, I'll talk for a while. So give me the hook if you need <laughs> to stop. But, um, you know, I like speaking to the public, I like interaction, interacting with the public. And I started offering public lectures, libraries, fishing clubs, garden clubs. I just spoke at the Daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, so all sorts <laughs> of organizations that will bring me in as a speaker. And uh, speaking is actually way more lucrative than writing as far as time and effort for what they pay you. So I only write a little bit now just to kind of keep my name out there a little bit, and I just focus on lecturing. Uh, but again, it's, it's become a, it's more than just a hobby at this point. It's become a, a big part of my income. And, uh, you know, in the peak, right now it's a little slow, but in the peak of the season, I'm speaking at least twice a week, uh, as, sometimes as many as four days a week. Uh, my wife yells at me to not book so many because those are the days I start getting crazy because <laughs> full-time at Stony Brook. And then driving an hour to get to a library, speaking for an hour, driving home an hour. It's a very long day. Plus, all the content that I'm getting is usually in the morning before work. So I'm trying to rein it back to just twice a week. But again, it, it became a very lucrative thing. And then with stuff like Zoom, I could technically speak anywhere, uh, which has also become nice. And during COVID, it saved me. I was able to do lectures. and uh, So yeah, so again, it's an enjoyable, for me, I like to interact with the public. Uh, I can ask questions, and you know I can answer them, and we can have a dialogue back and forth. So, so that's a no. Like I said, I'm, it, that's a little bit of it. I'm, I'm involved with a lot of different stuff. I like to keep busy. Yeah. Um, 
maybe you can walk us through some of the things you do day to day at the marine science campus. Yeah, so my day to day is never the same, uh, and it's never planned. Today I had a plan, and it went right out the window, you know. So, um, no plan survives first contact. No, not at all. And especially working with probably about thirty grad students, researchers, uh, the day can change pretty quickly when it's a last minute uh, problem with an experiment, need to change gears meetings because now I'm higher on the ladder of food like the food chain so now I do a lot more administrative type stuff and uh, so the day can vary quite a bit uh, this time of year I'm generally trying to repair and plan for next summer uh, but then in the summer months you know I could be in the field uh, helping someone collect organisms for an experiment setting up an experiment uh, I do a lot of public outreach at the university, so we see about 1,500 high school kids come out on our research vessels every year uh, where we'll do either like a bay exploration or this time of year we do winter bird and seal cruises. So I serve as the naturalist and again, just trying to bring in the research that we're doing and talking, bringing it out to the public so they can get a better idea of what we're doing at Stony Brook. Do you feel like the work that you do is more like field work? I guess maybe not the work you do, but the work that, you know, scientists at your facility do and that you go out and facilitate. Um, is that more field based or is it a lot of lab work as well? Is it like both and or? It's probably a little bit 50-50 as far as the researchers that are, that are at Southampton where, I, where I'm based. Um I generally don't work as closely with the ones that are in the field because they're just they're out there diving, doing whatever they're doing. Uh, I work with them when they get back. Um, so we have a lot of students studying ocean, ocean acidification. So they're setting up all sorts of chambers with CO2 and bubbling this and bubbling. So I'm usually helping with that kind of setup. Uh, I met with a student today who's looking to do some work with conger eels, and he was trying to figure out to start, how to set up the experiment plumbing-wise, filtration-wise. filtration Because, again, my experience prior to Stony Brook, I was a senior biologist at the Long Island Aquarium for over 13 years. So my background is life support, animal husbandry. So he has this idea. He comes to me. We sit down. I usually I call myself the dream crusher because I usually have to crush some of the dreams because <laughs> I'm like, it's just not realistic. Uh, and then we work out what is realistic and how we can get it going. So that's what I kind of enjoy, too, being part of that. Again, because I'm not a scientist, I don't, cons again, I don't consider myself a scientist. I like research, but I was never one for like the stats and the statistics and all. I like the field work. Like every, every student who mm -hmm. wants to be a researcher once you stop doing field work. Um, so I get to do the field work and the fun stuff. And then that's why the grad students typically go into hibernation around now. And I don't see them again until April because now they're crunching the numbers, writing the grants, planning next year's stuff. So, uh, so again, I get to do the fun stuff. And then at the end, I get to sit there and watch them defend their thesis. And I get a shout out at the end, which is kind of cool also. So, <laughs> and I didn't have to do all that other hard work. So, uh, so yeah, so that to me is, is exciting. You know, what's nice about my job is every day is different. I work with different researchers. And as grant money changes, that changes seasonally also. So, it keeps me keeps me fresh. Um, I was gonna mention you have a bachelor's, correct? I have a BS from Southampton College, LIU. So it actually was the campus where the Marine Station is now. 
So that's what's been really exciting for me is I went to school there. I graduated in 99 when it was LAU Southampton. I met my wife there. We've been married 22 years now. Um, I've had some of my best memories from that, that time at that college. So now to be in charge of the Marine Station for the next chapter is super exciting for me. And hoping to be that mentor that I had when I was at the college, you know, all the boat captains that were there, the man, the lab manager and stuff, you know, there are people I still go on vacation with. Like, you know, like my advisor from Southampton, we went to the South Pacific this past January uh, for a dive trip. And, uh, you know, so I, so that's what to me is more, is really exciting about where I'm at today is being able to work at a place that shaped me quite a bit uh, when I was younger. But I don't, again, I don't have the master degree or the PhD and that's something I try to demonstrate to some of the students also, because there is always a big push for grad school. And not that there's anything wrong yep. with that, but not everybody needs or should go to grad school. I see a lot of students that I work with, they get out of their undergrad, they did nothing for four years. When I mean that, no internships, no experience, so they can't get a job. But somebody's offering them a job in the lab as a grad student, so they take it. Then they do two or three years and they realize I still hate this. And then they go back to school for something else. So, you know, I try to push with a lot of the students as undergrads, like, go get an internship, go volunteer, go do something. Like, I, I, my grades were horrible in college. Like, I barely passed because I wanted to be a marine biologist. I just did internships. I volunteered. I mean, I had so much experience that I didn't have the grades, Uh, but... You know, when they when I they had the job posting for my position, they had a lot of PhDs and master's students apply, but none of them had experience on like life support, yeah. and putting tanks together and collecting organisms. And, you know, they were very focused on their study, which, again, depends on the path you're going to take. Um, so, yeah. So I try to when I work with a lot of the students, just show them like, mm-hmm. look, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need yeah. this if that's not the career path you're going to take, you know. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's a little different for me as far as the, like the average marine science person you might yeah, work at. Yeah, that's why about, I wanted to bring this up is because, um, yeah, there's a huge push for people to go to grad school and a lot of the times you don't need to for the job you want or, yeah, I mean, you're running the yeah. whole Southampton facility now and didn't have to get your master's, it didn't have to get your PhD and it, it sounds like a dream job. And um, also when I was at Stony Brook, I feel like having mentors like you and Kurt and Maxine, I had people just telling me to get experience, internships, do try everything new that you possibly can. And that's definitely helped me tremendously in my career, um, especially being a lot younger than other people that have had more time to get more experience. Um, So yeah, just taking all the opportunities you can and um, yeah, maybe take that internship instead of going to grad school right off the bat, figure out exactly what you want to do first. Yeah, no, I, I just met with a student last week and this was this discussion we had. Um, they really didn't know what they wanted to do. Uh, and I was like, well, then why yeah. would you go to grad school? Like he's applying to grad yeah. school. And I'm like, you don't know what you want to do. Take a semester, not take a semester, but graduate and get a job. And what I tell a lot of the students too is at that point of your life, and again, I don't always know all their background of their life and everything, but they probably don't have a house. They probably don't have a mortgage payment. 
there's little holding you back. Like if I right now said, you know what, I'm going to go take a job in Australia for, <laughs> you know, a year. and just, I, Right. I yeah. couldn't do it. You could. Because, again, at your point of your life, you know, you you, you don't have as much of a, that. No, it's responsibility. true. It's, it's like a the right word. Yeah. Um, but you understand what you can. You could do this. Like yeah. I couldn't do what you're doing right now. Like I just couldn't. Um, so I tell them, take that opportunity and go do something yeah. crazy. You know, don't just sit home, play video games. Go do something. Go take an internship abroad. Go go live somewhere different. You know that could you know and you know they're always like, well, how do I pay for stuff? Yeah. You get a second job. You know, there's always someone hiring a waiter or a waitress, busboy, bartender. You can figure it out. Well, that's just it. You know, the another student I was met with, she's same thing. She's yeah. she's actually just got yeah. a dive master, and they're talking about getting instructor like. If I were you at your age, I'd find a job in Fiji, yeah. Hawaii, wherever, and do it for a year. You know, who knows who you might meet also? No. And you might meet somebody that gets yep. you to your next path. You know, especially if you're in science. Maybe you meet read a researcher from a different university and they're just on a trip and they meet you. And you never know who you're going to meet. So just get the experience and, you know, don't worry as much. Mm-hmm. I mean, Stony Brook probably hates the fact that I say, you don't always need a degree. You know, I'm like... But it's the truth, you know, and I feel I'm fairly successful at what I do yeah. uh, and what I've done in, you know, for a living. Again, I'm in yeah. charge of a $10 million research lab at a, at a well-known university in the U.S. Like, I feel like I'm doing okay, you know, and I just have a yeah. BS, you know, so, um, but it's the years of experience yeah. that get you somewhere. Yeah, totally. I think, first of all, I can, like, completely second the like maybe you don't know who you're going to meet kind of thing. Like I work as a, as a dive instructor on the side right now, I have through all of grad school. Um, and I meet crazy people on the boats all the time. Like I, I meet people who work high up in NOAA. I meet people who work high up in the EPA and all these different, you know, I meet different people from different labs. I've met one of the people who runs or is on the board of reef, like, like the reef, um, when I was on a dive trip last year in Bonaire and I just like was on the same boat as her and I was like, yeah, I'm a marine scientist. And she was like, you should apply for a job. Send me an email. It's like, like, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really crazy who you meet, but also like the whole, like you were talking about sometimes people get into grad school and then they graduate and they're like, wow, I still hate this. What a, what a terrible time to find out that you hate something. Like, wouldn't it be so much better to go do a six month or three month long internship in undergrad and realize, oh my God, I hate this halfway through your college degree when you have the chance to do something different, like getting out of a master's degree in something that you hate, you just figured out you hate doing because this is your first experience doing it. Like that, that's, yeah, not, not ideal. The best thing you can learn from an internship is that you hate it and you want to change your whole life plan because then you have the time to do that, right? No, like, and that's, and that's the point. Like, an internship does not necessarily give, just give you experience to put on your resume for that next job. It could give you the experience to make you realize you hate this. Um, I have a, an example. Mm-hmm. When I was a, at the aquarium, we would have families that would come in Thursday afternoon because that's when I fed the sharks. And they would come in and watch the shark feed, and Junior was going to be my intern. I'm one, when I'm in college, I'm going to, you know, and it was crazy. And this makes me feel old, but I was there long enough to see junior become a college student and become my intern and hate it. Like, but they watched me feed the sharks and that's all they saw. But, you know, so I fed the sharks three times a week for 20 minutes of my 50 hour work week, an hour 
was feeding the sharks. You know, and that kid decided, all right, this is not what I want to do. I don't know where they ended up going off, but my wife had a similar experience. She's a curator of marine mammals and, and birds at the aquarium now, currently. And she's had kids grow up watching her do sea lion shows, and they want to be sea lion trainers. And again, it's a 15-minute show, but there's a lot of other stuff behind the scenes. So doing that internship makes you realize you either love it or hate it and maybe make a different career path or choice before you have an MS you know, or worse, a PhD, and yeah. you don't want to do anything with it, because now you're going back to school, and yeah, so, just, yeah, get, it's for good or better, you know, the experience. So, on to uh, the main topic of diving. Will you tell us a little bit about your dive education, and how you got into diving? Uh, so, I got certified in 1993. I was a junior in high school, and the reason for me getting certified was, again, at that point, I knew I wanted to be a marine biology major and all that kind of stuff, but I wanted to see the places that I go fishing. So I grew up fishing at the Shinnecock Canal, and I've never been able to dive it because it's illegal. And I had a close, almost got permission, but it fell through. But I would fish the Ponquag Bridge also a lot. And that's a well-known dive spot uh, in our area. And uh, it's an amazing spot for you in Florida. I would compare it to the Blue Heron Bridge as far as diversity goes. And I've yet to be there, but everyone that tells me that, like, it could be a very similar comparison. Yep. Um, okay, so I'm just going to interrupt. And uh, if you ever are in the area, please come dive in with I, me I feel the Heron. same way. I would love yeah. to, take, to take you there. It's like our... Sydney and I's little holy grail of grad school. It was, it was, it was it. So and that's, you should definitely come down. And that's Ponquag Bridge for me. So like when people come into the area and they want to dive, I make sure I take them to the bridge because you'll you can see everything from a little seahorse to a giant yep. stingray. And uh, this year there were a lot of octopus. I didn't get to see any, but there was a lot of them there. Reports. So yeah, so it's an amazing place. But I got open water certified. It was me, my best friend Mark, his dad, and my dad, and uh, his dad and my dad and Mark stopped diving quickly after that. I kind of, con I continued. Um, I never got advanced though. So I, this was a funny thing. I tried to get advanced a few years later, but one of the things about the fish guy, <laughs> I never seasick. knew. <laughs> yeah. So there's a little fact about the fish guy that most people don't know or didn't realize. No, because I played off pretty good. Um, so I went to do an advanced open water dive on a boat. And I got all suited up. We got out there and I got to the bottom. I'll never forget. It was the Panther oh. wreck. I got to the bottom. I saw the wreck and I threw up through my regulator twice. Oh and I was like, God. I got to go to the surface. So I went to the surface. They tied a rope to me and let me drift behind the boat because they said I would feel better. Uh, they then did the dive, pulled me back in the boat. They helped me get my wetsuit down to my waist. And then I passed down on the side of the boat, my hand over my, my arm over my head. They went to the second location. I fell asleep. I was out cold. I woke up to the smell of hamburgers because the, it got really calm. And they started barbecuing. And when I woke up, the whole underside of my arm was sunburnt because I, that's how I fell asleep. And I never tried it again. And then last year, I went and got advanced. And it was funny. I got advanced at Hampton Dive Center. Yeah. And uh, Randy's daughter, Emma, is my instructor, which is funny because, like, just the age difference and just, the, <laughs> um, you know, I have, I stopped logging dives a long, 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 long time ago, you know, so I've got, I've got a lot of dives and I've done a lot of deeper stuff 
Uh, but I just never had the card to say I was advanced. So finally did that. And uh, yeah, so that's it. And I stopped. I'm done with time classes for now, at least, you know. But uh, uh, yeah, so that that's, you know, and I do a lot of diving here on Long Island when the water's warm enough. Uh, which means usually 50 is my cutoff, 50 Fahrenheit's usually my, like, I'm done. I'm not diving after that, unless there's scallops to be had, and there haven't been any scallops in the last couple of years, so I'm usually done by then. Um, once in a while, I get to go on an exotic trip. Uh, this past January, I went to the Solomon Islands, to a little island called Upi, which is an island that I met my wife at in 1999 in a tropical marine biology class. So tropical marine bio at LIU Southampton was a month in the South Pacific, generally two weeks in Fiji and then two weeks somewhere else. So I went on that trip, trip of a lifetime. I highly recommend taking a tropical class if you can tell, if you can. Uh, again, my wife, I'd never met her before. She was in that class. Long story short, again, we've been married 22 years. And just before COVID, Steve Tettleback, who was our advisor, was planning a reunion trip. And it was just before COVID, so it got canceled and got canceled and got canceled. Uh, but we went back last year. There were 18 of us. So it was me, my wife, Tettleback, his son, mm -hmm. who I remember when we did the class, he was, his son was in the back of the classroom playing with blocks. He's now getting his PhD in marine science, which was crazy to think that that much time has gone by. Um, Kurt Bretsch went. Joe Warren went with us. Uh, uh, Tracy Vlasic. Um, other people that I graduated with so again it was 18 of us and we we it was a three-week trip we spent a week in Australia kind of just bouncing back and forth um, no diving there but then two weeks in the Solomons and uh, you walk down to the doctors black tips swing around and whalers mm -hmm. it just it was an, just an amazing <laughs> amazing location it cost a bloody fortune yeah but that's what credit cards are for. So we're figuring out, like, you only live once. You only yes. live once, so you got to take it. So, But I've been told by my wife we're going back in five years, so we have to pay that off quickly. Nice. But, um, yeah, that was an amazing trip, you know. And, that's uh, awesome. And I get to do, like I said, a little bit here and there, um, you know, as, as far as that goes. Um, will you tell us a little bit about all of the cool creatures, I guess, that are around Long Island? Because I know you give a talk that's... Um, kind of focused on the tropical species that come up? Yeah, so Long Island is, again, it's fascinating with the, the wildlife, you know, not just fish, but the marine life in general. And what's great about it is it changes with the season. So right now, most, not, not all of them, but most of the summer resident stuff have gotten out of here. Yeah. Uh, most of the fish are gone. The water's just gotten too cold. Some of the birds and other stuff are still kind of sticking around because it hasn't gotten very cold. Um, but, you know, then in the summer months, yeah, we get a lot of tropical fish that drift up from Florida. Uh, one of the, my hobbies as a kid was going out and collecting these tropical fish for the various aquariums I had in my house. And, um, and every year it's different. You know, the Gulf Stream brings them up here, and some years it comes closer, other years it doesn't. Timing of spawning events, there's so many different things that go into it. But butterfly fish, angel fish. This year um, was probably the first year in I think about 15 years we caught a whole bunch of blue angel fish, French angel fish. Oh. Uh, we saw a red snapper this year, which I've never seen up here before. A uh, yellow-tailed chromis, which I've never seen up here before. Uh, so it kind of would keep you excited. It's like an Easter egg hunt, you know? You never know what you're going to find. Yeah. Um, and like I said, some years are better than others. And this, this past year, wasn't great numbers, but the diversity was crazy. Like there was a lot of just different oddball stuff that I'd never seen before. Um, 
in the past years, you know, and then some of the regulars like spot fin butterfly fish. I've had days where one frame of a picture, there's 25 of them in the frame. Um, so, you know, and then this year I saw two all summer, but there were all these other things. So, yeah, so you get a lot of really cool mm. tropical stuff that drifts up here. Um, in the wintertime, uh, I don't get to do as much exploring. And again, generally there's not a lot of stuff, but this past March we did a trawl on Shinnecock Bay with a group of students we were mentoring. So we said, all right, let's do a trawl. Let's, I don't know. I, I was just interested to see what was there. And we got, at the time, I thought it was a squid because that wouldn't have been uncommon. And one of the faculty's like, we got a cuttlefish. I'm like, no, we didn't get a cuttlefish. There's no cuttlefish around here. That's Mediterranean. And, and I'm like, looking at this thing, I'm like, that's not a squid. It's not a cuttlefish. It was a bobtail squid, which oh I didn't gosh. even think. I never even thought was here on Long Island. But again, how many trolls have I done in the wintertime? Almost none, you know? So that was like one of the no. first ones. So we did a few more trolls and we never got another one. But we brought it back to the lab and I had it for like six months and it was doing great. And um, But again, that gets back to my point earlier. You never know what's here, you know? So you got to slow down. Yeah. You got to get out and you got to look for it. Um, so that was super exciting. Yeah, dead of winter, but we don't do a lot of stuff. Maybe there's more of them. Maybe that's a common thing in the Bay. Who knows? But I, I guarantee I'll be out there this March. Or yeah. maybe a little sooner trawling, trying to see if we can find some more. So, yeah. That's so has this, fascinating. Has this convinced wow. you to come join me for a dive on Long Island? I will complain the whole time. <laughs> but if you can if you can put up with my whining about being cold, then yes, I'll come. I'll come be your buddy. <laughs> the cold and the viz are what kind of get people not to enjoy Long Island diving. You know, I tell a lot of people, don't get certified. If you're from Long Island, don't get certified in the tropics. <clears throat> get certified on Long Island. So that's your baseline. Yep. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you get certified in the tropics. You come to you're Long ruined. Island. Yeah, the water's 62. And you're wearing a 7 mil and a hood and gloves. And the visibility is only 10 feet on a good day. And, you know, so, yeah, it's like, yeah, get certified on Long Island. If, if you're new to diving you think you might want to dive in the northeast get certified there cool well so we like to ask a one more like challenging question before we get to the silly questions um and this we kind of like to ask it as a way for you to um maybe offer advice or impart some wisdom unto people coming into this field um so we would like to know what's something that you wish your younger self knew or maybe new people entering the in- industry understood about it i think with one thing and i so when i was in high school you know i said i wanted to be a marine biologist i knew from a very young age that that's all i wanted to do but i got no support uh my my guidance counselor in high school straight up told me i was making a mistake wanting to go to school for marine science because there was no jobs no money they weren't wrong (laughs) <laughs> but but that I didn't think was good enough advice because so what? I now had to just be an accountant because there were jobs and it paid well? No. And you know, but my parents were extremely supportive of me. They did not care what I did as long as I was going to be happy. And I think that is the key is like if you want to do something for your with your life, do it, you know. If you have that dream mm-hmm. of being a photographer for Nat Geo, I'm not saying it's impossible it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of sacrifice 
you know, um, and that I think is the biggest part is take those, you, there's a passion for you, take it, run with it. But again, take the sacrifice. You know, there's a lot of people that I've, over the years I've worked with that want to work with sharks. Sharks are the top of the pile. It's like people want to work with sharks. They want to work with whales and dolphins. So there's a ton of competition. Well, how do you make yourself stand out on that? You then do that internship instead of taking a summer off. Maybe you take a fall semester off to do an internship because you can't get in in the summertime. You know, you make that sacrifice of being at school maybe an extra semester, but that at the end of the day would pay for it. So I think, you know, just, again, taking that risk, and if this is something you want to do, do it. You know, don't let other people tell you that it's not, you're not going to be happy or you're not going to make money. Again, me and my wife are both in the marine science field. We're not, you know, faculty at a multi-million dollar, you know, we're, and we, we own a house on Long Island, which is by itself is not an easy task. Um, you know, and yeah, mm -hmm. I have my other fish guy job, which is, which again, helps me live here, but I also enjoy that, but that's a sacrifice that I make instead of just hanging out yeah. on a Friday night, I'm giving a lecture somewhere. Uh, you know, so again, I make those sacrifices. I think that's just it. Make the sacrifice, do the internships, do the volunteer position, study abroad, um, you know, go do something like, don't just hope for it to land in your lap because it's not going to land in your lap. Sound advice. <laughs> Solid. Silly question time. It's the best time of the episodes. Um, okay. What is your best dive, snorkel, water, boating related story that you can think of? Oh, geez. This is something that changes pretty regularly. Um, you know, as far as because again, you come you get a new experience and that trumps the last experience, and then all of a sudden you get another one that trumps that experience. And uh, I think one of my most memorable experiences on the water, and it doesn't have to do with diving, unfortunately for you guys, but um, was taking my mom and dad on my boat for them to see their first whales. And oh. uh, my mom had never seen a whale, uh, my dad had never seen a whale. Um, they were so supportive, have been so supportive to me and everything that I've done. And, uh, yeah, mom cried. She was hysterical crying because it was, oh my God, like two whales, full, full breach out of the water. They weren't lunge feeding. There were two whales mirror imaging each other, jumping clear out of the water, giant splash, you know, 150 yards or so in front of the boat. Um, and they did it twice. They did it once and then did it a second time. I got the picture of the second round. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, that was one of the most memorable things to be able to show them all the support they gave me. This is where it ended up. That's, you know? that's a pretty awesome story. What, uh, what species of whale awesome. was it? Yeah. Humpbacks. Nice. Humpback whales. Yeah. And I've, and, I've yet know, we to were... see them. That's, that's on my list. I've never seen those yet. <laughs> yes. Well, ladies, when you come up here to dive with Sydney, I'll take you guys and we'll go find some whales. Perfect. And we will yep. uh, do some whale watching. We'll get we'll hit all the bases on that one. I like it. Um, but yeah. Um, okay. What is your favorite and least favorite marine organism? Two different organisms. All right. Well, again, the favorite changes from time to time. But one thing I guess I go back to a lot, and I've yet to see one while scuba diving. I've collected them here on Long Island, but I've yet to see one on Long Island yes. uh, while scuba diving are frogfish. Mm. You know, frogfish slash anglerfish. Uh, it's that whole 
the camouflage. They're fishermen. I mean, come on. It's a, they're a great angler, you know. So they got the lure. They know how to catch their fish. For someone that's got his, you know, my, my start from fishing, what better than a fish that goes fishing? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, up here I've collected striated frogfish as far as tropicals that drift up here. And I've also gotten sargassum fish, mm -hmm. which are also frogfish. So I would say those are my two, my, my favorite group of fish, I would say. I'm not going to say one over the other. I was just at Southampton High School and they had one that was... Indo-Pacific one was about the size of a softball, bright white with this big feathery lure. It was awesome. So I think they're probably my favorite yeah. marine fish organism, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. As far as my least favorite, that's a tricky one because I've yet to come across <laughs> anything that I'm like, this is just gross or stupid <laughs> or whatever. Um, but I guess if I have oh. to pick something, I'm going to say phytoplankton. And my reason is, I know we need phytoplankton, I know it's extremely important, but it screws up our visibility in the mm -hmm. Northeast. Those are why I have 10-foot viz <laughs> on a good day. Yeah. Um, you know, and yeah, there's the other problems with the harmful algal blooms and stuff, but I'm just, in a natural setting, phytoplankton, because it just messes up the viz. Yeah. So how, how, as far as the current, I know phytoplankton <laughs> is extremely important, but I'm just being selfish on this. Good one. answer. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. That's good. Okay. We always <laughs> ask, well, sometimes we ask what is one weird or unique fact about you, but I have one in mind. I feel like you should talk about your uh, red-tailed hawk. Unless you have another one. Oh, yeah, we <laughs> could do that. Um, yeah, because I saw that. No, well, when I saw that question in the press, yes. I was like, uh, well, I guess I'm going to have to mention I went, I get seasick, but I already <laughs> have done that. So, yeah, we have to move on from that. So, yeah, one of the other things that people don't know much about me is I'm also a falconer. So I have currently a red-tailed hawk that I go hunting with, and we hunt squirrels and rabbits and other small uh, game. And uh, this is something I've been doing now for 14 years. Oh, my and, gosh. <clears throat> you know, everybody always asks. You're the fish guy. How'd you become a falconer? You know, and yeah, 15 years ago, I didn't think that was even a thing. I thought that was just movies and, and whatnot. But I meet a lot of people in my my circle, and I met a guy who was a falconer. Very long story short, he eventually offered to be my sponsor, and I was an apprentice for two years. Uh, had to trap my first bird, and um, yeah, so it's pretty exciting. We're actually going tomorrow morning. I'm actually taking a couple students. Uh, so again, one of the things I like doing is I like to share my experiences with people. Um, so falconry is not something that everyone gets an opportunity to see or witness uh, up, up front and in, in person. So I usually am very rarely going by myself. But yeah, I have a couple grad students that I'm taking tomorrow to go falcon, falconry, hawking as we'll call it, because I have a red tail. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit different. That's not something you hear. That's what I, when I said earlier tonight. I, I do a lot of different stuff yeah. between my day job, the fish guy stuff, working for the museum, doing the shark tagging, the shark research, you know, the falconry. I'm a drone pilot, so I do a lot of drone photography and videography. So, um, yeah, I do a lot of different things. That's awesome. That's that's. I did not expect that, I will say. <laughs> that one, you, you've caught me. And then, you know, one of the things that I, I'll often do as far as sharing experiences, because falconry is, is the art of hunting with a trained bird of prey, 
and historically it was to feed one's family or to supply furs for one's family. Well, I still like to practice the entire thing. So when we catch squirrels, squirrel soup is a pretty popular thing at the college with some of the students. It usually gets requested. I'm supposed to make it before Christmas. I don't think it's going to happen this year. It'll probably be a week after. But yes, I bring in squirrel soup uh, so people can, again, try something wow. different. It's sustainable. It's organic, and it tastes like turkey soup. Most people don't know the difference if I just told you it was a bowl of turkey soup. But, um, yeah, so that's something. Yeah, that's another part. I eat everything. That's really Anything cool. and everything. I'll try anything at least once. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's – I – are we going to add yes. this to the, <laughs> have, the New York list? I haven't tried the soup yet, so the I, Long guess, Island I guess list. we have to. So falconry is a winter thing, so you'd have to be up here in the winter months. So the oh. season typically goes from November to March. So it'd be yeah, it's cold. Oh man, it'd be cold. Uh, I might have to sacrifice it for the soup. Do it for the yeah, soup. Yeah. <laughs> Post dive. Well, the soup will warm you up. There you go. <laughs> um, so that's what I was gonna say. Is what is our favorite post dive snack? I assume it's not squirrel soup because wrong season, but. No, so my favorite post-dive, pre-dive, well, boat, especially boat-related dives, yeah. um, pretzels, lots and lots of pretzels and Gatorade, yep. and that comes back to circle around for me getting seasick. Mm. So I eat a, I eat, typically before I get on a boat, I'll eat two bagels, and yes. then I eat two bags of, <laughs> yes, you got New York bagels, at least Florida bagels, Long Island bagels, um... And, uh, yeah, then I pretty much am eating pretzel nuggets yep. and drinking Gatorade all day just to keep my stomach as full as possible. And that usually keeps me from getting sick. Nice. Um, but, yeah, that's I guess that's my snack. If You know, I don't really, other than that, it would, yeah, I, I eat a lot of pretzels. I'm probably one of the few people that gain weight in the summertime because of all the carbs that I consume. You got to soak everything up. getting seasick on a boat. Oh. You know? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah keep awesome. it keep it full. Keep <laughs> the stomach full. Yeah. My goodness. It's one of my it's one of my big weaknesses. <laughs> if I could have one wish, that would be one of those wishes. <laughs> if I could not be seasick. Yeah. You know, I've tried everything. I go to acupuncture. I you know, I've tried all sorts of medication, over the counter, prescription. Uh. I I'm starting to manage it better. But, uh, yeah, it stinks. So after all this time, after all of your experiences, what keeps you coming back to the water? Oh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it exactly is. If it's just the smell of the ocean, the marine life of the ocean. Cause like I said, I do enjoy the woods. I spend a lot of time in the woods, but like, if I'm up at a family's camp up in Maine for a week or two, I'm itching to get home and get back to the ocean. And I, like I said, I don't know what draws you, draws me to it. I, I don't know if I could put a finger on it. Um, but it's definitely, like I said, it's my cup of coffee, <clears throat> you know, just being on the water at the beach. It's just, yeah, it's just like having a nice cup of coffee, you know, when you're waking up and just, yeah, if, I, if it's not there, I was in Arizona for a few, uh, for a few days. And again, I was kind of just getting a twitch. Yeah. I had to be back, had to be back to the ocean, but yeah. So I don't know if I can give you like a pinpoint on that one, but it's just, yeah, it, it just calls to me. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I relate strongly. I think I think most of us in this field do feel that, that itch, that calling. So uh, 
Yeah, and it, like I said, I don't, you know, because even if there's a day where I, I don't see any fish or whales, or just being at the beach, mm-hmm. is just, the sands even, you know, between your toes and just the waves crashing, it's just the whole, it's the whole big picture yeah, of it. For know. sure. Well, before we let you go, can you plug your website and socials for us so that our followers can go and find you and follow you and your amazing Instagram stories about overflowing banks and everything? <laughs> Most definitely. So yeah, you can you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Vimeo. I'm even on TikTok, and it's all at, at Fish Guy Photos, all one word, um, no underscores or anything, just at Fish Guy Photos. And again, you can find me on all of them. I try to post daily. Uh, I I try to interact as much as I can with my followers, but it gets tricky to keep up with it because that's also a full time job. But you know, please feel free to drop a comment or DM and I'll definitely try to get back to you on if you have questions or something neat you found. Uh, I always ask for, you know, my followers, if you find something really cool and you're just not sure what it is, send it to me because maybe it's something I've never seen before, you know, and again, just trying to better educate people. So yeah, fish guy photos on all the socials. And you sell prints as well. And I think you're selling calendars right now too. Yeah. Yeah, so I everything I post awesome. is pretty much for sale. You know, again, I I kind of got away from just selling prints because it's it's a hard sell. Um, this time of year, I sell stuff for Christmas, and it's usually big stuff. You know, like usually, like I'm working with one lady now; she wants like a four foot print of some ocean scenes and stuff. Wow. Um, yeah, Christmas time, I have my calendars, so I try to. It's 14 pictures of my favorite captures from the previous year, which is never easy to do. Uh, but yeah, I have those. You can get that stuff in my Etsy store. I also have an Etsy store. Uh, I got fish guy hats and swag and all that kind of stuff too. But um, uh, but yeah, if someone sees a print or, or picture they're interested in, you could definitely uh, shoot me a DM and we can work out you know the, the purchase of that. Um, yeah, and then uh, like I said, I do a lot of lecturing. So currently, I've got thirteen lectures that I offer. Uh, everything from fishy related birds my tropical trips that I go on fishing in Alaska and even a falconry awesome. lecture. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to uh, catch up too. Yeah. Oh, thanks for having me. This was, this was great. This was a lot of fun. It was, it's great cool. to see, uh, see all the stuff you're doing now too. Cause I remember you as, you know, that, that little undergrad yeah. who came <laughs> to a semester by the sea and uh, now you're, now you're, now you're a big, you know, scientist in Australia of all places, which is just awesome. So happy to see that your your path is taking you where you <laughs> yeah. need to go, and uh, you know that I mean that, that's that's great. Haley, I know it's the first time we've met, but um, I'm anxious to get yes. down to Blue Heron Bridge or have you come up here to do some whale watching. So we could definitely make that happen. So yeah, no, it was great meeting you. It was meet, great meeting you as well. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fish Tales episodes. Those will come out about once a month and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under titleteasapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at To Dive For Podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye. 
You know, if you listen to the end of our episode every week, you get a fish fact. And this week's fish fact is featuring bobtail squid. Uh, this fish fact is about their light organ, which is a special organ in their mantle or their head part uh, that hosts a population of bioluminescent bacteria. And they use this in an effort to counter-illuminate themselves, to camouflage themselves against the light water when you look upwards. Uh, so this is kind of a even fancier, higher-tech version of counter-shading. 